Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Robert McCrum is an associate editor of The Observer and was the paper's literary editor for 12 years. Before that, he was editor-in-chief of Faber and Faber, where he edited writers such as Kazuishi Guru, Marilyn Robinson and Peter Carey. His books include The Story of English and A Definitive Life of P.G. Woodhouse. His latest book is Every Third Thought, on life, death and the endgame, published by Picador. The book confronts an existential question. In a world where we have learnt to live well at all costs, can we make peace with what Freud calls the necessity of dying? Searching for answers leads him to others for advice and wisdom, and the book is populated by the voices of brain surgeons, psychologists, cancer patients, hospice workers, writers and poets. Historically, the oldie turned to God in the search for fulfilment during his or her later years, McCrum writes. Today, with the idea of God under assault from belligerent atheists and an indifferent majority of committed agnostics, there's still a hunger for a dialogue with something bigger and richer than individualistic materialism. I went to speak to Robert about the book. I hope you enjoy the conversation. You can subscribe to the Church Times and get 10 issues for just £10. Visit churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. So near the start of the book, you describe what happened to you on the 28th of July, yes, 1995. Yes. You say, that was the day I should have died, but didn't. Mm. It's one of those dates which, like one's birthday, I think the day you have a stroke, a bad stroke, is a day you never forget. And what had happened was I'd gone to bed the night before, not feeling not very well, and I'd woken up and was paralysed. And was alone in a the, in the house, and it took me 24 hours to get out of the house, um, to, to reach the telephone, to cook, and, and to make some kind of phone call to, to emergency services and to get get it get released from what was essentially a prison um, I, but I was when I say I was paralyzed I paralyzed all to my left side so I couldn't move easily and I was miles from a phone so I had to crawl down the stairs you know to get to the phone and that took me all day so it was a very dramatic beginning and I think if I'd known then what I know now about a stroke I would have, would have been terrified but actually at the time I wasn't because it just seems sort of, sort of weirdly quite normal, strangely, and not frightening. And you were 42? I was 42, yeah. So quite young to have a stroke? People say that, but I mean, the thing about the stroke is, although it's associated with old age, about a fifth of all strokes are, are, are people under 45. So it's quite common. It's more common than you might imagine. Yeah. But it was young, yes. Uh, and completely out of the blue. And there was, you know, my, all my sort of basic signals in you know, my pulse and my blood pressure and all that kind of stuff was very normal. So it was out of the blue and they, ne- and they never actually found a cause for it. So that's a bit sort of mysterious. Right. And our readers, I think, will be most familiar with you probably as literary editor. Yes, I was, was early, yes. Mm. Um, I mean, before that you were chief editor at Favourite Favourite. Chief editor at Favourite. And at that point I was just sort of top of my career and full of energy and life and all the rest of it. And now, 22 years later, so I've now had really half my adult life in this condition. I've, I'm just getting used to the fact that you know I've this is, this is the situation, and this book, every third thought, is like is like a kind of a new chapter for me. Of course, you wrote a book, My Year Off. Yes, I wrote My Year Off. That was a kind of therapy, really, because partly because the only thing that was working was my right hand, so I could actually write. I could I could write on a note with a pencil. I still can't type with two hands, but um, I could write on a notebook. And so I kept an account of my time in the hospital. I was in the hospital for about three months. And then I wrote an article which was published and got a very big audience. And then the article became a book, and then the book became my year off, which I'm proud to say is still in print. So, mm-hmm. 22 years later, it still goes on selling, and it's sort of a it's a kind of worm's eye view of, of stroke, which is a very big affliction. In statistical terms, about 150,000 people a year will die of stroke. Right. That's to say, 
we'll, we'll, we'll suffer from not, not we'll die, we'll suffer from of whom a third will die and a third will be very badly disabled and a third will be like me and make a fairly good recovery I mean the course of this conversation about 20 people will have a stroke in Britain and that can range from death to what they call a TIE a transient ischemic attack a very mild something but it's, it's a whole range and the other problem with it is that Every stroke is different. There's no kind of sort of standard treatment for stroke. You have to respond to it you know, on its own terms. Yeah. And there are very few patterns, other than it's very, very disabling and tends to be associated with old age. That's, that's the other problem with it. It's, it's of the three big afflictions to say heart, cancer, and stroke. It's, it's the kind of poor relation. Cancer and, and, and heart research attract all the, all the money, all the attention. The stroke is as much of a drain on the, on the natural resources as anything else, actually. And then just to skip forward to 27th of June 2014, yes. and you, mm. you write about in Every Third Thought, you, yes. you tripped and fell on an uneven pavement outside of our shops in Notting Hill. Yes, I was actually just, just up the road from where, where, where we're sitting. I was, I was going to have some physiotherapy with a, a regular physiotherapist, and I wasn't thinking. And I came th- came down the stairs quite slowly and walked out of the door. And, th- and then, for one reason or another, I, I caught my foot, which is t- t- my left foot tends to drag. And because I was holding my car keys, I didn't put my hand out. For, it's, 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 it's one of those coordination things. I didn't put my hand out to stop my fall. And so I landed on my head, oh, right. which is quite, uh, mm. which caused a sort of severe bleeding. And, it, you know, the, the fall is the classic thing in older people. And yeah. so I sort of brought up short by the fact that I was I think I'd just turned 60 and so there I was I was covered in blood and I was being rescued by an ambulance to take to A&E it was quite a shock and the shock began to reverberate and I began to think, think about which I obviously thought about a lot since I'd been unwell in, in 1995 about you know where we're headed which is um, not very encouraging <laughs> And you, in every third thoughts, when you when you write about this, for you say that since the stroke in 1995, you'd lived from day to day as if nothing had changed. In the back of my mind, I always knew there had to be a reckoning. You know, I had tried to go back to go back to my old way of life, obviously with some with some limitations, and I had pretended that I was 100%, which I wasn't. Which so it was a kind of fantasy, a fantasy of of, of of wellness, and I was due for a kind of tap on the shoulder, and I suppose it was a kind of tap on the shoulder, what they call a memento mori. So then I began, well, partly what happened was that My Year Off, which is the first book, the book about the stroke, what I call the Worm's Eye View of Stroke, had come up for another reprint and another edition. In fact, they, they reissued it with an introduction by Henry Marsh. As they were doing that, they said, the publishers, Picador, said, would I be interested in writing some more on the subject? And actually, having just had the fall, I'd been thinking about mm. the issues. I thought, well, actually, there are a lot of things that one could say. And, uh, and over the years, I've picked up quite a lot about neurology and related, the related illnesses of old age, you know, dementia, Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, and so forth. Um, and I thought it would be quite in- interesting to write a book which addressed some of those themes for myself and for anyone of my sort of age and generation. I mean, I think there are issues to do with being a baby boomer. If you're a baby boomer, I was born in 53, only 53, so if you're a baby boomer, you, you were raised to think you're immortal. <laughs> um, and that the fantasy of immortality is still, still something which runs quite deep in our culture, I think. And yet, as you get to the age that I am now, and as you as you have the kind of experience that I've had, you you realise that actually it is only a fantasy. And although the whole of society is complicit with the idea of doing better all the time, living forever, and 
having a wonderful old age. The truth is, that's not the case. So I thought it would be quite salutary to write a book which addressed that theme. And so that's where it began, the idea that we are going to live forever and life goes on getting, but you know, we can go on improving ourselves, um, having a sort of silver time of, of great happiness or whatever is really just not, not really sustainable. And one has to deal with the fact that we're gonna, we are going to start to decay in different ways, and some quite dramatic, in some cases quite dramatically. And then, of course, there's a very lively and interesting literature surrounding death and dying. Some of it's conscious, some of it's unconscious, but there's, there's, there's a lot of books about it. A lot of people have written about it over the years, and I just found it very um, satisfying to explore that. Mm. You mentioned that the baby boomers, do you, do you think that... Um sense of being immortal came from being the first generation after the war. I think very, mu- very much so, yes. Macmillan yes. and never had it so yes. good. There was that. And there was that tremendous, I mean, I th- when I think back to my parents' lives, my father had served in the Navy. My mother was too young to actually be in the war. They had both voted for the Labour government in 1945, mm-hmm. and they wanted to make a new society. They wanted to, have, you know, to get married and have a family and put the past behind them. You know, I think that the, the urge in human society for us to renew ourselves is very strong, and I think the fifties was a time of renewal um, on a fairly limited basis, admittedly. But it was a time of re- it was also a time of change. It was post-colonialism, post-imperialism, Suez, and so forth. I mean, I grew up in the fifties and fifties and then the sixties in in an age of optimism and looking looking forward to th- to life getting better after the war. The title of the book from the Tempest. Every third thought. Yes, it's it's, uh, it's it's comes at the very end, and Prospero is is saying he's asked about retirement. It's, it's Shakespeare pass partly looking at his own life, and he says, "I'm going to go back to Milan, Milan, to my library." Um, so he's very he was keen to go back to his library, and there he says, "Every third thought shall be my grave." And it's a line that's always struck me as a very typically brilliant Shakespearean line. It's funny how readers of my generation, they all say, the common response from readers who've, who've enjoyed the book is that this is the thought that everyone has when you get to a certain age. Yes, and you, and you, I mean, you write about historically the oldie turn to God in the search for fulfilment mm. during later mm. years. Today with the idea of God under assault from belligerent atheists and an indifferent majority of committed agnostics, there's still a hunger for a dialogue with something bigger and richer yes. than individualistic materialism. Yes. And the, so the dialogue you, you have is a dialogue with sort of reading and music and culture uh, and, and, and probably a bit of God thrown in. I mean, I, I'm a sort of confused agnostic. I, d- I mean, I don't really have a position. I sort of believe in there being a greater mystery than ourselves, but I couldn't, I couldn't say that was God. Right. But, and, but I, I do think there's something, there's, there is some, there's something in, 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 in our culture, in, in language and in literature, which is sort of sacred in a way and it's very important to me to subscribe to the things you have you have to, or to believe the things you have to believe to say you're a, 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 a person of faith is something I couldn't do my problem is my, my position were you raised going to church as many people yeah you? I was raised going to church we used to go to church my parents used to go to church pretty much every Sunday um, when I was at school we went to church twice on Sundays and every day every day and I went through a period of being quite devout when I was about 15 oh, interesting Classic. Often that happens, doesn't it? Does happen. I became really quite sort of ascetic, right? <laughs> and you know, giving up, denying myself in lots of ways. Right. And um, was that the influence of sort of evangelical? Not, spe- it wasn't, no, it wasn't, not wasn't even. It wasn't actually. Yeah. It was more. I was. I was. I, I went to school in Sherborne in mm. the West Country, and there were a lot of monasteries around. About there was one at CERN. There was one in Blanford Forum. There was one. 
there were several and I used to go partly away from getting, getting away for school I used to go for long weekends with these to, to stay with monks <laughs> which sounds rather weird but it was actually very enjoyable and very restful yeah. and soothing and you know, I quite liked meditation and chanting and, and the simplicity of, of the contemplative life when did that fade or, or go your I suppose when I got, got when I discovered girls I suspect because <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, the celibate life seemed to be something of a restriction when you were 17 yes was there an intellectual journey or were there skepticism no I I regret to say there wasn't an intellectual journey there was an intellectual sort of philandering about at the time reading reading um, sacred texts and and poetry and so forth but I don't think it was really a journey it's probably more of an escape or a retreat than a journey (laughs) my father was always he was a Christian and he went to church all his life and was I think quite devout and I think he really believed it and I, I quite admired that and respected it, but I, I just couldn't. I just couldn't get there. The, the, most, the most difficult chapter in the book is the chapter where I talk about faith in the face of death, and, I, and the only way I can the only way I could actually address it was by turning to C.S. Lewis' Grief Observed, and so by, I, I, I use that as a way of trying to grapple with the issues raised because it's a wonderful book and it's very short. Yes. And I, but but it's my way of disguising the fact that I don't really have any. Any faith. One thought reading the book was that um, obviously, you know, centuries gone by, many people died young, and they were most preoccupied with what happened after they died, really, with, mm. with heaven and yeah, hell. Yeah. Um, I mean, one thing comes through in the book with the friends you you interview, really fascinating conversations, is that there's not it doesn't strike me as being a preoccupation with an afterlife. It's more the no, manner of death, no, and will there be pain? Will there be indignity? I didn't come across anyone much who believed in the afterlife. Even the Christian you interview, I think Sally Vickers, so the, yeah, she it's, doesn't really believe in no, it. No. no sensible Christian believes in heaven or hell. It's no. a drama. Yes, um, and sh- and she was she's very interesting. She she was she sees religion as re- as providing a narrative line to get you through the yeah. transition of dying. Um, he she says, and I, I agree with her. I think we you know we all need narratives to console yeah. and 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 um, guide us in times of trouble and for her religion is, is a consolation and a guide it's not a path to something better or different it's a path to extinction I was struck when you meet the neurologist Andrew Lease oh yes um, and you, I, just, I just noticed when you describe his priest-like serenity that must be a great comfort to his patients I, I wondered if doctors have sort of replaced priests I think, I think he's a consultant and he's a very good consultant too but he's very calm and he's very serene quite commanding he's, he has a lot of confidence he knows his subject. He knows that what we're talking about is something which is mysterious, profound, and all-encompassing, and that's very helpful, actually. Um, and I think if I if I'd been one of his patients, I'd have felt I felt would have felt in good hands. So he is a bit of a bit of a priest-like figure. He's quite Zen. Also, oh, your your friend Kate, who you, who you write about, who was diagnosed with aggressive breast cancer. Oh yes. Um, yes. I guess maybe the names have been changed. Did I changed the names. Sure. Yes. Yes. Um, I'm just trying to think who that was. <laughs> there, are, there are two. There are two women in it's it. Kate and Carol. Ka- I think. Yeah, Carol is one. Uh, Carol is one person, and Kate's another. Yeah, they're both. They're both real people. They changed their names. Sure. Kate says, you know, in those moments when you're so frightened, it's as though the blood running through your veins is ice cold. Then I did wish I believed in God. Belief would have given me someone to ask for help. Mm. But I guess is it, is it a desire for someone all powerful who can answer? Well, I, I, please for I, help. In um, in my ear off, I actually describing. Pushed about, I was in a wheelchair, I was being pushed around the National Hospital. And as you go through the National Hospital, uh, if, you, if you come in from the square, Queen's Square, and you come in, you pass the Victorian Chapel 
on a one occasion I asked whoever it was to push, to push me into the chapel and leave me in the chapel and I thought well this is a good opportunity for me to talk to God right. um, and to get some and maybe to get an answer so I, I sat there for a bit and I had some thoughts about God and, um, but it didn't there wasn't much of a dialogue right. so it was a slightly contrived experience but I think people do they do hope that maybe there will be a, a, an answer from from, a, from from outside somewhere. And of course, in the, the C.S. Lewis, you, you quote, it's, it really struck me because someone who was so devout and an apologist for Christianity yes. in that moment when his wife had died, he says it's the um, like a door being bolted, yes. double bolted, double, double bolted. Yes, but it's, I, a, it's a fascinating book. There, yeah. it's so brilliantly written too. Do you, to what extent do you think that was written in the you know understandable torments of grief and? Or, or was it something he more, with slightly more detachment, came to afterwards? That that conclusion he has about it. Well, he yeah. certainly wrote it. I mean, the, the, that famous first line: "No one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear," which is an incredible opening line. Yes. And also, he was a writer, so I'm sure he he expressed himself to himself. I'm sure he kept notes uh, after Joy Davidson died, and I think the book came out about four or five years after she died. It actually appeared only two years before his own death. Yes. So it was a transitional piece of work. It was originally published anonymously um, by T.S. Eliot at Favour and Favour, my old company. Right. Um, but then it became obviously with C.S. Lewis, who at that point was very famous as, as an apologist, and it was re- reissued under his own name. Was that quite shocking for his readers? Having I don't know, actually. I really have no idea. The, the, the response to Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis's Grief Observed, it was reviewed as a work of literature, which it is, um, and then it became a devotional book, and then of course the whole hospice movement and Cecil Saunders and all that kind of stuff took off um, quite soon after that. So there was a movement from the late 60s into the 70s of end-of-life care, hospice care, which has now become a very big thing, as you know, and um, very import- plays a very important role in... I mean, I've give, give, given talks about the book in two or three hospices now, oh, right. and there's quite an interest in, in that. Thing, you know, there's constant change, there's change in, in, this, in the world of stroke, there's change in the national health, there's change in hospice care, there's change in faith, belief, and attitudes to death and dying. And I think we're living through a time of, of quite, cons- I mean, we're living in a time of dramatic change in some ways, but very obviously. But I think below the, below the waterline, there's also a lot of other change going on too. Mm. As we increasingly recognise that medicine doesn't hold all the, all the answers, we want to take charge of the, our exit. So the book is partly about that. It's partly about how do we take charge of making a good exit. Mm. Which in a way is, I mean, there was a tradition of books in, the, in medieval times called the, you know, the kind of art of dying books. And in a way, it's just another of those, yeah. in a sense. Yeah, and you write about a good death mm. and um, what that looks like. Mm. Yeah, I wonder really what you think a good death. It must be different for each person. I think it's different it? for each person. Some people say quick. Some people say painless. I think many deaths, people just fall asleep essentially and go into a deeper and deeper sleep and then just pass away. Pass away being a good description of what happens. I think some people have horrible deaths and, and I think it can be pretty ghastly. I witnessed one which I began to describe in the book and then actually couldn't face going on to describe it anymore. There's a character called M towards the end and it was just, the whole thing became so gruesome I just felt it would be wrong to explore it. Right. Uh, also, I wasn't really ready to, to deal with it. I would be now, but I wasn't. That was three years ago, so it was just oh. too too raw subject. And I think you know, bad deaths and they do happen are very traumatic for all concerned. So there are different. There's a different. There are different versions. Somebody said Adam Phillips said, who I interviewed, mm. he said it wasn't so much 
death as dying that bothered him. It was dying, it was the issue, um, not death. Yes. Which I think is a pragmatic and quite sensible approach. Yeah. Now, Adam Phillips says he wants you fallen out of a religious sensibility, you're a bit marooned. Mm. We've mm. got medical language for the physiology of dying and religious language for the meaning of dying, but in the middle there's a void. Mm-hmm. And that, that seems to encapsulate where a lot of people are. Yeah, I think that's it, that says it exactly. Yeah, I quite agree, yes. And, and you say works of literature fill the void of faith. And I think that's right. And I think for me, what literature does, because they're sufficiently loose, they aren't too prescriptive. I think what, what we resist currently in our, as, you know, as selfish people we resist being told one thing or another. We like to find a path for ourselves, and the literature enables one to have a, yeah. a fairly diffuse response. Yeah, I think there's a bit where you say, in the end, it all goes pear-shaped. Or something like that. I, ju- I just wonder if there's something slightly depressing about that, that li- literature appears to provide this narrative and this meaning, but it's all illusory uh, in, well, in the end. I, you know, we, you and I don't know, do we? we don't know. I mean, uh, no one close to me has, has died, ever. I've never, I've never been at a deathbed, honestly. Although my partner's mother died three or four years ago, and that was quite traumatic for her. So you know, one knows what that can be like. Yes. Anecdotally, but I've never actually experienced it. I think it can be very difficult. And just on the, on the afterlife, you say in a secular world, God and His comforts are strikingly absent for most people, but ideas about an afterlife still hover like spectres in the human imagination. Mm. Do you think that's a universal experience for humans, or is it is it culturally conditioned? I think it must be culturally conditioned. Um, you know, you and I are sitting here in, in, in England. We're you know, part of the West, and we've probably grown up in, in the Anglican tradition, yeah. um, or some kind of tradition where where, where afterlives are dominant as a, as a nation. And there are other parts of Europe, where that wouldn't be, or the world, where that's not the case. But I think there are versions of the afterlife in almost all religions, one way or another, with some exceptions. So I think it, that is a presumption. And I was also struck by, as a non-believer, I'm glad to entertain the possibility of being surprised. So when you write about, I mean, yes, you, with, well, with your explanation of the brain, there's a lot of mystery there, and you're, you're open I think, to... I mean, who knows? I mean, you yeah. never know, do you? I mean, I, 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 you know, I, don't, I certainly don't, I don't consider myself to be an expert. I, all I consider myself to be is somebody who's thought about it, thought about the subject. And there seem to be enough, there's enough mystery surrounding it, there enough imponderables to make it sensible to have the idea that there could be a surprise mm. who knows I mean you, you mentioned about that you in the book you can't address this religion in depth because there simply isn't space and there's such a vast literature do, well, do you have any plans to write more on exploring well, belief and I belief? might do I might do I, I not, not at the moment currently I'm writing about Shakespeare right <laughs> which is another form of belief yes or obsession or something but you know never say never I mean it's it's these 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 big subjects are very engaging and people I mean you know people do like to talk about them I've, I've had no, no shortage of interest from people who want to talk about the book, okay. which is nice, actually. But I, I, I always preface my remarks about it by saying that you know, I'm not an expert, or rather we're all experts, we're all equally expert. We just don't know anything, really. We're confronted with these questions. All we can do is entertain the questions. I'm not a believer. I don't go to church. Except you know, I go, I do go. I, get, I mean, I go to memorial services. I go to weddings. Mm. So I go to weddings and funerals. I go at Christmas time with my family and Easter probably, and maybe once or twice in the, in the course of the year I might go, to, go into a church to listen to music. But I was raised with the Bible and the prayer book, and every every Sunday till I was about seventeen. So I am imprinted with the literature and the ideas and the music 
of the, of the English church in a way that I, you know, I, I can't deny that. And it's very influential. And, you know, I can listen to the Messiah with the best of them. <laughs> I just can't make, I can't take the next step into saying I'm a, I believe in God. And I'm sorry, I'd like to be able to do that, but I can't. Because the more I think about it, the more I just, I can't make that leap. Um, but if somebody wants to get in touch with some ideas about how I make the leap, I'm open to, open to, to suggestions. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.